Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. Over the next two weeks, we'll be exploring a topic that impacts all of us, ageism. And if your reaction to that is, ageism hasn't impacted me, think again. Ageism is discrimination on the basis of age, and it can be any age or perceived age. So there can be ageism against younger people, there can be ageism against older people, and it differs from something being pro-aging. Something that is anti-ageist is different than being pro-aging because oftentimes when something is pro-aging, it can kind of just get wrapped up in itself and it can oftentimes become ageist in and of itself. It's rooted in denial and it's rooted in, yeah, basically an avoidance of the natural progression of time. That was Ryan Backer, co-creator of Old School, an anti-ageism clearinghouse. Ryan is an age activist striving to undo ageism within an intersectional framework. They aim to eradicate ageism along with white supremacy, gender bias, ableism, body shaming, homophobia, classism, and all other forms of oppression. Lena Macaroon, ex-officio board member with the American Geriatric Society, a nationwide not-for-profit society of geriatrics healthcare professionals dedicated to improving the health, independence, and quality of life of older people, is a geriatrician and research fellow who also sees patients at the VA Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion in Pittsburgh. Lena studies the intersection between health policy and health equity, with a particular interest in assessing the social determinants of aging on health and in reducing and preventing elder abuse. Here's what she had to say about the correlation between ageism and elder abuse. I think ageism does play a large part in that. It's the belief systems and the biases that we all have that tell us that it's okay to do that to older adults because there's a diminishing of their value. Ageism is something where I think it's also really hard to disentangle ageism and ableism, right? Because a lot of what we associate with the aging process is this loss of independence, a loss of ability, a loss of cognition. It's a lot of loss. These are the negative stereotypes we have. And I think particularly with older adults who have cognitive impairment, it's really easy to strip them of their agency. And I think a lot of ageism and ableism that lives inside many, if not all of us, provides cover and justification and kind of enables a lot of this behavior to go undetected, unquestioned, or to be perpetuated. Treating a person less favorably than others because of their chronological age or perceived age is certainly more glaring when it reaches the level of abuse. But by the time perpetrators reach that level, they've typically experienced a lifetime of unchecked underlying biases about age and agency. So when we talk about ageism, first of all, ageism isn't just a bias against someone who is older. It can be a bias across the life course, right? So 
our project happens to focus more on older people because of the policy implications and because of how it developed with the aging organizations. But certainly we all know the importance of all of us, you know, across the life course. That was Trish D'Antonio, Vice President of Policy and Professional Affairs for the Gerontological Society of America, an organization that is dedicated to supporting individuals in living meaningful lives as they age, something which requires a multidisciplinary and intersectional approach. Trish spoke about intervening at the level of the individual as well as on a societal scale. She shared that people require scaffolds of support throughout the life course. And something she told me, I think, speaks to why whatever age and stage you are of life, you should care about ageism. It impacts us all because we're all aging. And you really do have to think about that bias towards our future self. I sat down for a joint interview with Mia Mullen and Kirsten Jacobs of Leading Age. Mia is Leading Age's Associate Director of Strategic Initiatives, and Kirsten is Senior Director of Shared Learning Initiatives. Together, they work to address the effectiveness of internal and external initiatives and to advance Leading Age's ageism work with a strategic focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We talk about ageism as discrimination based on age. And while we all live in the United States in this youth-centric culture, ageism can impact anyone regardless of age. So the broad brush comments about millennials are examples of ageism in the same way that comments about older adults are examples of ageism. But knowing that older people tend to be most impacted by ageism. That tends to be the focus of our work, but we're all temporarily, whatever age we are in this moment. So how ageism shows up across the life course may be different, but we're all impacted by discrimination based on sort of where we sit in this exact moment. And then it's amplified by what other identities we carry with us. I would agree with Kirsten entirely and would also add to that, that we're all experiencing getting older, but we're also experiencing the aging process within the context of the lens that we bring to that experience, the ideas, the perceptions. And that is why it's so deeply important to take the time to explore that throughout your life because we're receiving messages that have been framed by our families, our upbringing, the communities that we live in. And then those ideas are also reinforced by the world around us. So really important to take the time to explore what that process, what that experience is like for you at every stage of it. So let's explore. Much of the available work in anti-ageism focuses on ageism's impact on older people primarily older white adults. However, what if we take a step back and see ageism as more insidious and pervasive? What will it take for us to fight it To realize that we all are Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better, need some more. 
Here's Ryan Backer again. I did an internship when I was in school with the New York City Elder Abuse Center. While I was there, I think the main thing that I learned about was just how insidious it is. I want to say one in 25 cases of elder abuse go reported. Something like that. Something ridiculous like that. So we don't even know. Like, we don't know the statistics around elder abuse because it's just so insidious and on so many levels. And just in my own experience, I've heard of people at various levels and it's so complicated. There's so many layers to it because even self-abuse, right? Self-neglect could be considered elder abuse and you could definitely blame ageism for that. I looked it up, and the statistic is 1 in 24 cases go unreported. Here are some other statistics that I see as inextricably linked. At least 1 in 10 adults aged 65 and older will experience some form of abuse within a given year. And at least 1 in 7 children have experienced child abuse or neglect in the past year. Both elder abuse and child abuse are far more likely to occur at the hands of loved ones. Here's a snippet of my conversation with Lena. So most elder abuse does occur between, you know, an older adult and someone who is a trusted other, oftentimes a caregiver. So rather than it being, you know, a stranger or someone who's just kind of predatory, a random person. So yes, and actually... Contrary to what I think perhaps many people in the public think, it is most frequently a family member who is the one using the violence or abuse rather than a paid caregiver or, you know, happening in a long-term care facility, etc. So I think we have this idea that, oh, elder abuse is just something that happens in nursing homes, but, you know, most of it actually occurs in the community um, and at the hands of family members. Right. And and I think that elder abuse can be, I think people have the misconception sometimes that it's always physical violence or neglect, but there's also the financial abuse that can happen. And so I, you know, I definitely don't want to vilify families, but how do you deal with that? It is really, really challenging. I mean, elder abuse is a very complicated phenomenon where I would say you're very rarely dealing with just black and white situations. And very often you're in gray areas where maybe the same person who is misusing their older parents or grandparents' sons is also the one who is predominantly taking care of them and maybe doing a good job taking care of them in certain ways. As I said, abuses against children and elders are overwhelmingly more likely to occur at the hands of the community. But I didn't say how overwhelmingly. Of the older adults who are being abused, 90% of them are being abused by those they know and even love. And of child victims, 91.4% are being mistreated by one or both parents. And there are degrees to that abuse. It may be physical, emotional, sexual, financial, or a host of other things. Elder abuse, it can happen on so many levels. It can happen with oftentimes, for instance, one of the common things that happens is a parent will have any number of kids and they'll all go off and do things. And maybe one will be the one who isn't necessarily successful. They might 
be into drugs and alcohol and they might end up being the one to take care of their parent because everyone else has their lives and then they might end up in whatever way, whether it's financially abusing or just taking up their space or like expecting them to be catered on. Or I think it's also oftentimes passed down. It's intergenerational. It's passed from generation to generation. And oftentimes if a parent raises a child in an abusive way, then once the tables are turned, the adult children end up being abusive towards their parents. These issues are not restricted to family systems. They have societal implications and, in fact, are a reflection of social policies that devalue people across the lifespan. And they have ramifications from birth to death. For instance, children who experience child abuse and neglect are approximately nine times more likely to become involved in criminal activity. And older adults who were physically abused are 300% more likely to die prematurely. Those who may be the more vulnerable members of our community require protection from the community. And in many ways, the reasons for this can be traced to the ideologies that are inflicted on us by a culture that is designed around systems of supremacy and sovereignty. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various 
corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Here is Teresa Reed. How cultures view aging is affected by a lot of external factors, right? So it's not doesn't happen in a bubble. Americans just fantasy of self-reliance is part of why we've become so much less tolerant of aging and or how we value people by by their productivity and how we view aging has changed with the industrial revolution because you know older people on the farm often were indispensable and then suddenly they become dispensable when they can't you know stand at the factory for 12 hours a day so it's really really complicated there are lots and lots of factors that affect how cultures think about aging. And we are really ageist. The U.S. is very, very ageist, but we're not the only ageist culture. Teresa has spent much of her working life in the nonprofit sector, helping to establish and then run the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, the Chicago Children's Advocacy Center, Arts Engine and Living Arts, and the Alliance for the Arts and Research Universities. She has chaired her county's chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, and she is the innovator behind Aging for Life. Teresa sees the connections between social neglect and insufficient resources early in life, and the ways these failures haunt us throughout our life course. Dementia is a social justice issue. There's actually like a dementia belt. I mean, every, everybody's at risk. The earlier you start education, for instance, the farther you go in your education uh, affects your dementia risk, your physical activity, your diet. I mean, all of this stuff affects dementia risk, your environment. We really have the capacity to greatly lower dementia rates with early childhood education, <laughs> you know? With free access to college and university, with cleaning up environmental hazards. It's not just age. It's also all these other sociocultural factors with state legislatures slashing funding for public institutions, both K-12 and, and public colleges and universities. And that's one of the things about early education and especially university education, because you make connections both to other people and just intellectually that just keep blossoming. You learn how to research and how to ask questions and so forth. All of this stuff is a, a preventive for dementia. The impact of ageism experienced throughout the course of a lifetime compounds over time. And when combined with other isms and phobias that people encounter, its impacts are further magnified. It's easy to talk about ageism being a white person issue because white people are literally up until I would say recently, they were the only ones who had enough resources, had mm. enough life expectancy to care about it. And also 
it's my opinion that ageism is a direct result of capitalism, colonization, and white supremacy. They're just so wrapped up in each other. They are. And I think in the same way that racism is a precursor to violence and discrimination against Black people and, you know, and the disproportionate death of individuals of color, ageism is a necessary and essential precursor to elder abuse. And I think people don't recognize that there's a direct corollary between ageism and elder abuse. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I think people in the elder abuse world probably know, but other than that, there's no understanding of that. And I think that's so important to talk about, especially if you want to change hearts and minds. Changing hearts and minds is hard to do when we're dealing with an ism that we're all perpetrating to various degrees. After our interview, Teresa sent me an email, and I'd like to read an excerpt from it because it gets to the core of why this is such a charged and uncomfortable issue. The subject line of her email was, and then there's death. Here's the excerpt. I was just thinking that if you love life, you're naturally going to be, at the very least, ambivalent about aging, since every day takes us closer to the end of life. The prospect of leaving this world, of course, induces grief, which few of us wrestle with very well, in part because American culture in general is so death-phobic. The nearest thing we have to consensus about death is that it should be ignored. Terror, grief, anger, denial about death are fluidly transferred to our thinking about aging. Youth, strength, and beauty, however beauty is defined, have been worshipped by every culture. With age, these all ebb. The attendant loss of status is inevitably hard to bear. Our inability to conceptualize aging and death is inextricably part of the cycle of life, fuels an emotional paroxysm in response to aging, which we can only see as loss. And then came Teresa's somewhat surprising sign-off in light of the fact that we were exploring a topic that many people avoid. She wrote... I loved talking with you. Good luck with this interesting project. In order to squarely face ageism and its deleterious effects throughout the life course, we have to see age itself as a progression rather than a destination, and to understand that ageism comes out in everything, from the way adults speak to their children, to the creams we put on our faces, to making decisions for grandma because we assume we know what she needs better than she does. You know, I read an article recently that was like, it's too complicated to talk about ageism against older people and younger people. So we're just going to focus on ageism against older people. And I think it does a disservice to the discourse to do that. I agree wholeheartedly. A few days after speaking with Ryan, I interviewed Kyrie Carpenter, who founded Old School with Ryan and Ashton Applewhite, the well-known anti-ageism activist and author of This Chair Rocks. In addition to fighting ageism, Kyrie has worked to shift the tragedy-only narrative of ageism and dementia through her work on the Changing Aging Tour. Prior to Changing Aging, she worked with elders living in long-term care, and she wrote her thesis on the anti-aging myth in America. I feel like this isn't scientifically proven, but the way that I sort of conceptualize it when I was doing my research for my thesis is that we seem to, as a culture, value 
somewhere in the like in our forties, like that level of experience, like that's the level of experience you need to have to like know best. But we want people to look like they're in their late teens, which yeah. doesn't happen, right? So when I think of who would experience no ageism, would be someone who could transplant a forty-year-old consciousness and experience in you know a nineteen-year-old body. And I think anyone who isn't that does kind of experience this paternalism. And I think we see it a lot on older folks and also on kids. You know, I think all of us who have been children have had that experience of someone telling us what to do and just kind of knowing it wasn't right for us. At the time, you know, I mean, that's a lot of coming from a therapy background, right? A lot of therapy hours have been spent helping heal when kids didn't get what was right for them and they were told something was right for them that was wrong for them. I think the same thing happens at the other end. I can personally attest to having a lot of emotional scars as a result of my ex-stepfather's ageist attitudes towards me and spending a lot of time in therapy dealing with the impact of living in a house with someone who at times treated me like a non-entity and at others seemed to relish exerting his power to make me feel small. But not all ageism comes in the form of brute strength or overt cruelty. Often it is far more insidious, but still damaging. Where there's benevolent ageism, I think, is a really important thing to remember of not necessarily wanting to put older people on a pedestal, because that also does a disservice to expect an older person to be wise can be really problematic. And there's definitely other examples of that, of just expecting anything from any age group It's important to value people as they are for who they are and to embrace their individual identities as well as what they contribute to the collective. What you know, people talk a lot about independence and like preserving independence. For me, I'm not that interested in independence. I'm super interested in interdependence. It really is a loss not only to the person who, you know, is having their rights taken away, but also to the community at large. Because how we function as an interdependent web is by all contributing. All of us live at the intersections of a multitude of different identities and experiences. Our life trajectories are shaped by the identities we hold, by our experiences and our perceptions. Here's Mia Mullen again. When we talk about isms of any sort, I'm a Black woman. And so there's a lot of intersectionality for me in that that conversation. But what really struck me was how many internal biases we hold and how those biases, ideas, perceptions really shape our experiences, but not just our own experiences. It's what we extend to others. And so I thought about everyone in my life and how my perceptions of getting older impacted them. And it really was a moment where I said, <laughs> was like, I'm not really serving the people that I love based on my perceptions and my fears about getting older. And I really needed to unpack that. And so that put me in this space. I consider this space that I'm in right now really to be a space of learning and growth. So I don't really position myself as an expert or authority It's really a journey. How we see people and ourselves, the value we assign to those we know and those we don't, determines our thoughts and behaviors. 
When it comes to ageism, something that came up throughout all the interviews was that aging makes us more, not less, diverse, and that in collapsing people of any age into stereotypes, we do those individuals a disservice and we strip our various communities of the richness that that person has to offer, a richness that is a direct result of the diversity that is acquired as they age. I think what we all know is that as we age, we become much more diverse. Older adults are actually in many ways the most diverse group of adults across the age span or the most diverse group of human, to be quite honest, across the age span. So two 70-year-olds may look absolutely nothing alike. One may be running marathons and one may be having serious physical function limitations. If you meet one 80-year-old, you've only met one 80-year-old. It tells you nothing about the other 80-year-olds. But for the most part, older people, it's a resilient crowd. They've been through stuff. They're not new at problems. You know, they've lived through stuff. So already you have resilience there. That was Lise Jameson, licensed clinical social worker and executive director of At Home in Greenwich, a nonprofit membership organization that supports older folks in remaining at home as long as they choose to do so, and that provides everything from community engagement to structures of support for individuals as they age. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, Whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Here's Kyrie again. We are all born unique and geriatricians say if you've met one 80-year-old, you've met one 80-year-old. We become more and more divergent with every day it passes, with different life experiences, with different ways things are manifesting in our body. And so absolutely, we start different, and we only become more different with every passing day of experience. And the bigger question for me, which is just interesting to ponder, is why do we want everyone? I just feel like there's like this deep desire for people to be the same. And I feel like we see that across all of the different facets of our identity and all of the different diversity conversations is this like deep undercurrent of desiring sameness or this unspoken assumption that sameness would be better than difference. And yet, like sameness doesn't exist. 
Sameness doesn't exist, and the effort to bring about uniformity in identity and the various traumas inflicted on members of different populations has direct ramifications not only across the lifespan, but in terms of one's actual longevity. According to the U.S. Census's 2020 statistical report, white men tend to outlive black men by an average of five years, and white women outlive black women by an average of three years. Unfortunately, due to the gender discriminatory nature of the census, there's no information about those who do not fall into the binary male or female categories. And gender matters in terms of longevity as well. Black women, on average, outlive black men by seven years, while white women outlive white men by an average of four years. However, whites are not the leading race for living the longest in America. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, as of October 2020, those of Hispanic and Latinx heritage tend to live 2.5 years longer than whites and 7.7 years longer than blacks. Researchers postulate that these longer life expectancies could be attributed to stronger cultural and family ties, as well as a reluctance to assimilate to many unhealthy American traditions. The point is that who we are within society has a lot to do with quality of life as well as length of life. Systemic racism leads to worse health care, but also poor education, discriminatory workplace practices, poor opportunities, you know, discriminatory housing practices, banking practices, all of that, those things in the social determinants of health frameworks, I mean, those things are directly what ends up leading to shorter lifespan because we know that secure housing, secure jobs, good education, all of those things are critical for good health as well and longevity. I see ageism as wrapped up in every other social justice issue. It's absolutely wrapped up in every other social justice issue. If the conversation around ageism begins to be seen by more people as a critical and overarching social justice issue, it begins to mobilize individuals of all races, genders, orientations, abilities, and ages. The intersectional nature of ageism and the fact that intersectionality works both ways. It both compounds to further oppress, but the way at least like we at old school frame it is that it also can compound in an activism place. If we can make the world less ageist, we're also going to be moving to make it less racist and less sexist and less homophobic. And so I do feel like something to dive into more too is, yeah, what does intersectionality look like from an activism perspective? And also ageism as an empathy builder in a way in, because even those who have experienced much adversity in their life will experience ageism if they live long enough. If you can expose them to like, hey, you're feeling this, that feels yucky. It's a really good empathy builder for like other diversity factors. And it's a way into the proverbial like privileged white male. The strange thing about ageism is that throughout our lives, we move from being victims to perpetrators in various moments and to varying degrees, and we can inflict our ageism on others as well as on ourselves. No one is immune to it, even those who work against ageism. Because we want to simplify things that we don't know about or fully understand. And because we get so many messages around 
what it means to grow old in age, then I think we tend to try to protect ourselves with these ideas. And we start to make these associations of like age, as you get older, you lose ability. Your ability changes throughout your life. There's no sort of constant way that you exist in any moment in your life. But for some reason, it just seems to make sense in that space because these changes can be, you know, it's so visible in certain moments in your life where it may not be as apparent to you in other spaces. The spaces where it does seem all too common for other people to unilaterally put us into boxes are when we're younger and then older. And the feeling of being constricted by culture is one that I think most of us can relate to. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Ryan asked themselves a powerful question. Why am I interested in this work as a young person? Technically, I do experience forms of discrimination against me but because I'm younger, but I also think that ageism against older people has affected my psyche my entire life. I think it has shaped me in a way that makes me question getting older, that makes me uncomfortable with the idea of getting older. I talk a bit about as kids, we're taught to celebrate our birthday over and over every year. We make the biggest thing out of celebrating our birthday. And at some point that stops and it flips and it's like, no, actually, you don't want to get another year older. And it just reverses itself. It does a 180 and it's so complicated. I sat down with Talia Kaplan, a student, a gymnast, a daughter, a sister, and a huge proponent of intergenerational relationships to speak about this 180. How old will you be this August 6th? Six. I'm five and three quarters right now, and in Hebrew, I would say kimat shay. Wait, say it again and tell me what it means. Kimat shay means almost six. So do you speak two languages? Yes, I speak English and Hebrew. Tell me, like, how does your brain keep the two languages straight? So if I start a sentence in Hebrew and I don't know words in the sentence that are Hebrew, then I just use English. No problem. Talia taught me a lot during the course of our 30-minute interview, like Hebrew phases, the fact that an alicorn is a unicorn with wings, and the value of agency and autonomy throughout the lifespan. When you get to be a parent, what are you going to do with your kids that your parents do with you? I would give them timeouts if their brother or sister was mean. What won't you do when you're a parent that your parents do with you? What will you do different? Um, When my kids are nice, I would do what they want, as long as it's not dangerous. 
Talia's ability to interact with me, a then 37-year-old journalist she'd never met, and speak candidly about her experiences, past and present, are likely a direct result of the fact that she interacts with people of all ages, from her younger sister to her two sets of grandparents, to her grandparents' friends, as well as her cousins and her parents' social circle. She told me that having options is important. Did you decide to do gymnastics or did you just get signed up for it? Like who picked what you were going to do for fun? Mommy told me about gymnastics. And so if we can go, our parents tell us if we if we can go. But we can choose if we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How important do you think choice is for you? How much does having a choice matter versus being told what to do? So if I did be told I had to go to gymnastics, I wouldn't be happy about that. If I, if I had an option to go to gymnastics, I would rather do the option. One thing that came up repeatedly throughout these interviews was how age segregation and institutional atmospheres, such as schools and long-term care facilities, can strip people of their choices, which can divest them of agency and have the either intended or unintended effect of invisibilizing their individual identities. I still really see the way that we treat our elders, particularly those living in long-term care, as the most toxic intersection of ageism and ableism. Mm. I actually really see long-term care as a very, like, hair's breadth difference from incarceration. You know, basically the crime of not thinking like the rest of us. Can we talk a little bit more about why you likened long-term care facilities to the prison system? Can we talk a little (laughs) bit about that? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So that idea was for first given to me by an elder I worked with who was living with dementia and we were hanging out. So just also for framing, my way of being with people living with dementia is um, every single one of us has a separate reality. You and I right now have different realities and we agree on a consensus reality. I think it's important to know that when I spend time with folks living with dementia, I choose to be curious about enjoying the reality that they're living. I don't add to it. I also don't challenge it. So I was hanging out with this gentleman and he told me, and he was telling me, like, you know, um, my son's going to break us out of here. And I was like, oh, he, he is. I was like, what do you mean? And, you know, and through talking to him, it was clear that he thought that he was in, actually, like, he thought that he was a prisoner of war and that he was in, like, a prison camp. And so I got curious. I was like, oh, why do you think that? And then he started giving me his evidence for the fact that he was in prison and it was that um, all the doors were locked, except some people could go in and out the doors, but the other people couldn't. So there were people in uniforms who could exit doors, but he couldn't. When he would try to use the elevator, he would get told it was broken, but then would see people using it later. He was told where he had to sleep, but it wasn't home. He was fed, you know, on a certain schedule. <laughs> he didn't think the food was that good. He found cameras that he pointed out to me like around the room that were watching him. There was like this daily regimented schedule. He couldn't go outside on his own. He could only go into like this courtyard. And I was just sitting there listening to him. And I was like, you know, all of the evidence you're giving, I share that reality. Like I, yep, I see the doors that have codes on them that some people know and some people don't and the cameras and everything. And yet 
in my mind, all of that evidence is, oh, you're living in memory care. And in his mind, all that evidence went to, like, I'm living in a prison. I want to be clear. I'm not saying, and neither was Curie, that there's no value in long-term care facilities or that those who work in them don't care deeply about older people. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Many people who work in elder care facilities have a deep respect for older Americans. And in fact, I think it bears repeating that statistically speaking, the vast majority of abuse cases occur within the home and not at care facilities. The issue comes down to independence, interdependence, and autonomy. If individuals want to reside in community with other folks within their age demographic, and those facilities provide socialization, engagement, and autonomy where possible, then great. But stripping people of choice at any age and stage strips them of their personhood, and that type of paternalism robs people of life's richness and robs society of the contributions that that person could make to the collective. I think somewhere about 10 years in, I started just having this dissonance around what I used to do as a director of senior living communities, choices like moving the furniture after everyone had gone into their room for the night instead of including everyone in that decision-making, which stands out to me as this painful memory of just paternalism showing up in unexpected places. In her work with At Home in Greenwich, Lee's sees it as her role to be a support to people in executing the choices they want to make. Just because you're a certain age doesn't mean you need someone advocating for you, or you need intervention, or you need someone looking out. I mean, you know, not everybody requires that. We tend to attract are folks that are not afraid to look around the corner and say, you know what, at some point, you know, I'm going to need blah, 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 and to be sure nice to have someone available to help mm. me with that, whatever that is. But some folks feel that, oh my gosh, Lise, if I let you modify my house or get me a food shopper or get me a driver, I'm going to lose my independence. And then I look at them square in the face and say, look at me because I'm going to roll my eyes and I want you to see me. And I say, as long as you're calling the shots, you're keeping your independence. And you always call the shots when you work with me. Earlier, Talia said it really well. As long as it's not dangerous to ourselves or to others, as long as we're not hurting anyone, we should be able to make our own decisions. But for younger people, and then as we move throughout the life course, it seems that those surrounding us are often continually trying to divest us of agency in ways that reduce the fullness of our lives. I feel like it's easiest to focus on the very end. The long-term care pick is the most saturated version, right? And then, But all of this applies like further back too, right? So it's like the deciding of where one should live is like just a little bit example of the deciding when someone should retire. You know, starting to like make those subtle signs of when someone should retire and when some, there are these like, it goes back and back. And so I think what it really comes down to, the real danger is, and it's helpful to start with our own self. So like think about, you know, I've heard each person listening to think about their day to day and what it would be like if somebody dictated teeny tiny things about their life and how confining and restricting that would feel. You know, if someone told you what time you were going to get up in the morning, if someone told you where you were going to live, 
and who your roommate was going to be. Think about getting in your car. I mean, that's such a big issue. That's such a sticky issue for a lot of families when it comes to aging, too. It's like being able to get in your car and go somewhere or get on your bike and go somewhere or get on the train and go somewhere is such a big part of our sense of identity and who we are. And not even just our individual identity, but our sense of being connected to the greater community around us. And when someone else starts making those decisions for us, it clips our connections to that community, which is, in my opinion, really such a big part of our humanity. Next week, we'll speak more about decision-making up to and including substituted judgment so we can add layers of depth and complexity and focus on more tangible solutions and strategies. But I wanted to, at a minimum, encourage all of us to think about the ways that isms strip us and others of our humanity and how the only way to counteract isms is to appreciate and value people, which we can only do if we get to know them, not as who or what we think they represent, but as they actually are. Here's Mia Mullen again. I think one of the biggest messages that has come out of leading age and that I have received (laughs) around this work has really been focusing on the on the individual. We know that we are all very complex human beings that hold within us a depth of wisdom. There's just a vastness that lives in all of us. And we really limit ourselves and one another when we restrict ourselves to only believing that people operate as one dimension. We are multi-dimensional, multi-layered human beings. And so the way to really get around that, as I have experienced it, is to really, truly try to understand the person in front of you and to get to know the person in front of you. And to sort of suspend whatever ideas we have around that and open ourselves up to that vastness. I've never met a person that did not hold vastness in terms of who they are. And what you lose in that or what you stand to risk, I think, is really time. People want to hurry up and know everything there is to know about a person. And that's just not possible. And I think that that's Part of the issue with ageism, as we see it, is that you impose this idea to get around having to do the work of getting to know and truly understand someone and all of the identities that live within that one person. One of the ways we clip off an understanding of the vastness of people in America, especially within frameworks that influence the individual over the community, is that we discount and disregard those individuals whose vastness spans decades. Teresa Reed told me this about her own experience of aging. I started aging for life because I was just trying to cope with the process and explore it. But with everything you do, you end up learning something. And Aging, well, like when I became a parent, right? When anybody, when you become a parent, everything changes. Your entire worldview, it's like, oh my God, who knew? Who knew? It's just like everything changes. And the same is true with aging, but slowly, right? So 
by becoming a parent, you gain incredible knowledge of yourself and the world and other people that you could not have had in any other way. And that's true of aging as well. So you get a perspective on life and values and time and other people that you can only get through the aging process. It's the only access you have is through the aging process. We continued speaking about the ways in which the actual experience of aging is something that can only be understood experientially. And our conversation wasn't just based on our individual observations. It was rooted in research. There was a study that came out that really showed that overwhelmingly people as they aged felt better at various points along, you know, than they imagined that they might. This is one of the hidden advantages that younger people can barely imagine. Like, how could I feel better? You know, when my body looks like that, but there is a a tremendous freedom. And of course, again, this many different factors affect your ability to enjoy this aspect, but, you know, just like feeling like, oh God, Prove that. Don't have to do that anymore. Like, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And like, just there's a wonderful kind of um, a shedding of concerns that used to really that would keep you up at night and would judge yourself by how you performed. And you don't, a lot of that is just gone, which is marvelous. That's part of the perspective that you gain that you can't gain any other way. Trish D'Antonio mentioned this same study. There was a a report put out by University of Michigan Center on Healthy Aging. And one of the pieces that they talk about is when you interview people who are age 50 to 80, they do talk about how they have experienced ageism and how, you know, how different types of ageism. But what they also talk about is that flip side is that how do people feel when they arrive at these ages. And, and really that's what people find most compelling is that really it's the journey and they do have more satisfaction and more than what they thought they would. And, and they've answered those questions and people are happier than they thought they would be as they age. And that study, while offering useful insights for all of us, as we're all aging, even at this very moment, doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of intervention needed to protect people from ageism as we move throughout our lives. In fact, the quality of our mental and physical health could be vastly improved if ageism were eradicated. There is definitely research that shows that age bias in healthcare has a dollar cost. Becca Levy from Yale has done some really great research on that, where one in every $7 spent in healthcare can be attributed to ageism. So that's whether someone is treated or not treated for something because we're thinking solely about their chronological age and not what you look like as a whole person, right? Taking that holistic approach to treating an older person. So an example like that, where we would say, and we hear this now, even in COVID, if you're 75 or over, we will, or we will not take an action to to treat you. COVID-19, of course, has brought to the forefront how much ageism is still alive and well in America. Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic has greatly and disproportionately impacted older adults in terms of the severity of infections and mortality. But the reaction to that, because it's 
quote unquote, just nursing home residents, you know, or just older adults was very different than if this had been affecting children or, you know, people in their 20s and 30s. You know, I think that that really laid bare some of these kind of shameful things that a lot of people and a lot of us still feel. A less deadly example of ageism in action can be found at your local drugstore. Have you purchased any birthday cards recently for someone who's over the age of 50? What kind of statements do you see in those birthday cards? And in fact, when we give presentations, we highlight that. It's just very accepted that you could make fun of someone's age in a birthday card. And I'll tell you, I stopped purchasing those kind of birthday cards because that just perpetuates this. We see it accepted that people make comments about people's chronological age as if that is the only thing that makes that person who they are. And we know that that's not true. Kirsten brought up the greeting card example as well, and then added to that the ways that early inoculation of ageism can be damaging and the ways ageism has been baked into American society. Should you go down the greeting card aisle and look at the birthday cards, the number of birthday cards that are blatantly ageist, and that is completely acceptable humor, even the over the hill things that people have historically done that kiddos in school are celebrating the 100th day of school by dressing like a 100 year old. And that means a whole bunch of stereotypes in a costume on a child. So kids are getting these messages from kindergarten younger. Me and I both have young kiddos and we talk about the children's books that, you know, that you pull out of your kid's bookshelf and add to the workbook shelf because it's not okay for my kid to get these messages, but I can think about how they show up just everywhere. In the words we say, I'm having a senior moment, you look great for your age. It's just in the air we breathe to some degree and very much still acceptable, even though we're, we're starting to see some movement building around ageism in ways that we might not have seen 10 or so years ago, but still it's, it's so inherent in our culture. And because ageism is so interwoven into our collective and individual psyches, we can look in the mirror and discriminate against ourselves. Anti-aging, as you know, is like a huge industry. What if, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's just a huge industry. It's really, really unhealthy. And like if in a culture that really, that disparages aging so much, like you're really caught between a rock and a hard place, right? It's like, well, since I don't want to die, you know, it's like you don't want to die, but it's not okay to get older. So, so plastic surgery and all of that stuff that whole anti-aging industry. It's pretty sick. I think that like something that we haven't talked about, but I think it plays a huge part is the billion trillion dollar anti-aging industry. Like we don't often think about how much that probably affects us, but it's, it's there, like it's embedded in our culture. And, you know, there's plenty of people who are, putting lots and lots and lots and lots of money into prolonging life expectancy and living forever. And that terrifies me. 
As I was writing this episode, I found myself continually coming back to snippets of other interviews for episodes that won't come out until later this season. I kept recalling things people had said that seemed related to ageism and to the importance of embracing all that people have to offer wherever they are in their life course, while at the same time acknowledging that as we age, we accumulate more and more life experiences and become more diverse and more varied. This isn't to say that older people ought to be expected to be wise, but simply to acknowledge that with age comes an accumulation of experiences. Rob Lawless, who over the course of the last six years has been on a mission to make 10,000 friends through hour-long individual conversations with people with a myriad of experiences and perspectives, which they've amassed throughout their lifespans, told me. I think about it like meeting a child is more like reading a kid's book, whereas meeting a 98-year-old is like reading this 700-page biography novel. As a person who loves to read, this makes sense to me. There is tremendous value in opening a book and discovering the magic contained inside. But I think in order to appreciate the story inside, we have to be receptive and not try to superimpose our own stories onto others. The other comment that's been rattling around inside my mind was something Emily Anderson, marketing director and lifestyle expert turned human-centered designer and coding teacher for Girls Who Code, said to Anna Marie during their interview. I do not underestimate the capability of children. Children are amazing and so much smarter than we give them credit for. I would invite you not to underestimate anyone and to engage in meaningful conversations with people of all ages and experiences, because it is through these interactions that we eradicate the isms that divide us. As Talia and I concluded our interview, it was clear that there wasn't a conclusion. Our conversation had only just begun. Talia, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. I would like to do a Zoom with you again. Next week, we'll return to the subject of ageism, focusing on strategies and solutions. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to notice the instances of ageism that crop up over the course of the next seven days, the things you say and think and feel and witness that make you aware that ageism is something that is superimposed on us and carried in us throughout our lifetime. So many factors affect how we age and many of the factors beyond our control and many of the factors begin very early in life and then just snowball. So yeah, when we talk about, you know, like the only thing constant about aging basically is ageism. It's ageism is like the only thing constant about aging.
Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment, or visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Ryan Backer, Lena Macaroon, Trish D'Antonio, Kirsten Jacobs, Mia Mullen, Teresa Reed, Kyrie Carpenter, Lise Jameson, Talia Kaplan, Rob Lawless, and Emily Anderson. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. This episode includes reporting by Anna Marie Jones. The music you heard is better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.